0: chapter number 10 of the witch of salem this is a libriVox recording all libriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by kenneth sergeant gagan the witch of salem by john r music chapter 10 charles and mr Paris. Night is the time for rest. How sweet when labor close to gather round an aching breast the curtain of repose, stretch the tired limbs, and lay the head upon our own delightful bed. Montgomery. Jealousy for the first time entered the heart of Cora Waters. Blessed is the being free from this curse. That green-eyed monster, unbidden, enters the heart and enthrones himself as ruler of the happiness of the individual over whom it assumes sway. She heard all that mother and son said, and then watched him as he went out. Then she closed the door of her apartment and retired to her bedroom. It was almost evening, and when Mrs. Stevens informed her that tea was ready, She feigned headache and asked to be excused. It was the heart rather than the head that ached. Charles Stevens was gathering in the herds, as was the custom for the night, when he came rather suddenly upon John Louder, returning from the forest. "'No, Charles Stevens. Where were you last, Lord's Day?' asked Louder. "'Was I missed?' "'You were indeed, and I, trow the patrol, could not find you.' I was in Boston. Do you know that Mr. Parris hath begun to cry out against some of the people? I have heard as much, and I think the pastor should be more careful, lest he will do an injustice." Louder shook his head, and, seating himself on the green bank of a brooklet, answered, "'Goody nurse is a witch she hath grievously tormented me on divers occasions and in divers ways.' "'Fain would I believe her other but I cannot. John letter you are deceived and a deluded man. Nay, nay, Charles, you mock me. I have had her come and sit on my chest and oppress me greatly with her torments. Have I not been turned into a beast and ridden through thorns and briars at night and awoke to find myself in bed? Charles, laughing, answered, it was the troubled dream from which you awoke, hey— I found those thorns and briars pricking my hands and legs. Perchance you walked in your sleep. Charles, why seek to declare me in that way, when I know full well that what I tell you is surely true? I see with my eyes, I hear with my ears, and I feel with my senses. Only night before last, I was ridden into a field where they partook of a witch's sacrament. And what was it, pray, asked Charles, with a smile of disbelief the flesh and blood of a murdered victim charles laughed outright nay nay charles you need not laugh cried louder angrily she was there too who the maid who hath lived at your house the offspring of a vile player behold i saw her partake of the sacrament charles Stevens faced alternatively pale and flushed as he answered john louder you are the prince of liars and beware how you repeat your falsehoods, or I shall crack your skull. Louder, who was a coward as well as superstitious, had a wholesale dread of the stout youth. He sprung back a few paces and stammered, "No, no, no! I don't mean any harm. I am not saying anything against you, John Louder. You are a notorious liar, and I warn you to be careful in the future how your vile tongue breathes calamity against innocent people. Begone!" Louder slowly rose and slunk away, and Charles Stevens returned home. The evening air fanned his heated brow, and he sought to cool his angry temper before he reached home. The silent stars watched the sullen youth who, pausing at the gate, gazed in his helpless misery on the broad-faced moon and murmured, "'Oh, how will this all end!' It was his usual bedtime when Charles Stevens entered the house. And his face was calm as a summer sky over which a storm had never swept. His mother was still plying her wheel, and the heap of wool rolls had grown legs and continued to diminish. She asked her son no question. He sat down near the table, took up a book of psalms, and proceeded to read. There was one in the next apartment who heard him enter. It was Cora, and rising, she crouched near the door to listen. Perhaps they would say something more of Adelpha Leisler. But he did not mention her name again, and she almost hoped he cared nothing for her now. Although he had confessed that in his boyhood, he had looked upon her as his future wife. Almost every man selects his wife in early childhood. But the child lover seldom becomes the husband. The lover of a playmate, tender as it may be, is not the love of maturity. Cora strove to console herself with these thoughts. But there was another danger that would obtrude itself on her way. That was the knowledge that he had not seen Adelpha for years, and she had developed from a child to a beautiful woman. Long she sat near the door, feeling decidedly guilty at playing the part of an eavesdropper. But when Charles rose, closed his book, and went to his room, and the mother put away her work, Cora rose. And went to her bed, despite her sorrow and mental worry, she had sweet dreams. Somebody who was Charles appeared to her in light, and she rose with the sun in her eyes, which at first produced the effect of a continuation of her dream. Her first thought on coming out of the dream was of a smiling nature, and she felt quite reassured. The dream had been so pleasant and sweet; life seemed so peaceful and full of hope. Nature smiled so brightly on this holy morn that she almost forgot the hot words of the pastor and her jealousy of the night before. She began hoping with all her strength, without knowing why, and suffered from a contraction of the heart. It was a bright day, but the sunbeam was still nearly horizontal, so she reasoned that it was quite early. But she thought she ought to rise in order to assist Charles' mother in her household duties she would see Charles himself, feel the warmth of his glance, hear the music of his voice. No objection was admissible, all was certain. It was monstrous enough to have suffered the pangs of jealousy on the night before, but now that the bright dreams and glorious dawn had dispelled these, she felt sure that good news had come to her at last. Youth is so constituted that it quickly wipes its tears away for it is the nature for youth to be happy, while its breath is made up of hope." Cora could not have recalled a single instance in which Charles Stevens had uttered a word of hope or encouragement to her. Her thoughts seemed to play at hide-and-seek in her brain, and she was so strangely particularly happy this morning that she preferred to enjoy the revels of the daydreams to the realities of life. Leaving her bed, she bathed her face and said her prayers. Voices were heard without, and she listened. One was the beloved voice of Charles Stephen. He was speaking with someone whom she rightly guessed had just arrived. The voice of the newcomer was too far distant for her to recognize it at first, but her eye, glancing through the lattice, described the form of a man coming toward the house, that tall form. Within Cavendish features and stern, unbending eye, was a man who had publicly condemned her and held her up to the scorn of the whole congregation because she was a child of a player. Cora did not hate him, for she was too pure, too good, too heavenly to hate even the man who had declared her to be a firebrand of perdition. What was his object this lonely morn? His appearance dispelled all that rosy dream, and once more plunged her into that horrible, oppressive gloom, which seemed heavier than lead upon her heart. "'You are aboard early this morning, Mr. Paris," Charles answered to the minister's morning greeting. Not too soon, however,' the reverend gentleman answered. "'The devil does not sleep. He is abroad continually, and verily one needs must rise early.' to be before him and his minions.' "'Where are you going, Mr. Parris?' asked the youth. "'I'm coming here. Why, your call is early. Not earlier than Satan's. I trow he is here even already, and hath abided with you before I came.' Charles made no answer to this, for there is no wrath like the wrath of an angry preacher, whose zeal warps his judgment and makes a fanatic of him, bigoted, tyrannical, haughty, and cruel, Paris swooped down on his enemies with the fury of an eagle. Charles Stevens was a little amazed at the manner of the minister, and asked, "'Is your business with me?' "'It is,' answered the minister. "'Well, what is it?' "'It seems best that we converse where there is no danger of being overheard, Charles, as what I have to say is very grave and serious nature, and—' concerns your soul's welfare. When a bigoted, ambitious zealot becomes interested in the welfare of a person, that person is in danger. The anxious girl, whose face was pressed close to the window-lattice watching the men, heard all and turned so pale that even the warm rays of the sun failed to give that tint and glow of life to the cheek. She saw them walk away down the path and go across the brook among the trees and over the distant hill. To Charles it was like making a pilgrimage to some place of evil, the end of which he dreaded. Across the hill, hidden from the town by trees and an intervening slope, they paused near the corner of a stone fence, and Mr. Parris leaned against the wall and gazed on Charles in silence. "'What have you to say, Mr. Parris?' the young man asked, as the cold gray eyes, like a gleam of steel, fell upon him. Mr. Parris, in slow and measured tones, answered, "'No man knows until the time comes what depths are within him. To some men it never comes. Let them rest and be thankful. To me it was brought—no, no, no, it was forced upon me. I am despised and misused and abused by the world, for the fact that I stand in the hand of God to do His holy work." "'Oh, you talk strangely, Mr. Paris," said Charles, when the wild-eyed fanatic had finished and turned his haggard face up toward heaven. I think your earnestness and zeal are mistaken." "'Yes, mistaken by all, but I know the Lord ordains me for this good and holy work, and I will serve my master, hard as the task may be. Mr. Parris, may we not be mistaken in what constitute the service of the master? Ay, it is not the way so plain that a wayfaring man, though a fool, cannot err therein. Yet they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doth God's service. Great question to decide is which is right. Not every one that saith Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven." "'I am right,' cried Mr. Paris, his face flaming with passion." So, Melendez believed, when he drenched the soil of Fort Carolina with the blood of the innocent women and children, said Charles. "'Young man, I am the preacher, not you. It is for me to speak and you to listen. Satan has been unchained, and the air is full of evil spirits. Mr. Paris, I've heard enough, let me stop you here. It will be better for you and better for me. Let me go home." "'Not yet. The Lord commands, and it, it must and shall be spoken. I have been in torment ever since I stopped short of it before. Look not amazed nor alarmed. When I tell you that the day of the wrath of the Lord is coming, and the minions of hell that torment this accursed land will be gathered into the fires of destruction. Charles, forgive this earnestness. It is for your sake. It is another one of my miseries. I cannot speak on that subject nor of that subject without stumbling at every syllable, unless I go my check and run mad. And as Charles Stevens gazed into those wild and hollow cheeks, he thought the man must already be mad. Let us return home, Mr Parris. Take another day to think before you give expression to what you would say, no, 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 you must hear me now. There is a man driving his cows forth to graze. He'll be gone directly. I entreat you. Let us walk down the road and return, and what I would say, Charles, must be for your ears alone. He yielded to the entreaty. How could he do otherwise? For there can be no harm in walking with the pastor. Mr. Parris, among his other accomplishments, had the power of disassembling. He could assume a smiling exterior while a devil raged in his heart. After they had gone aside some distance, and the farmer had passed on with his cows, they returned to the old stone wall, and Charles waited, very much as a criminal might, who stood to receive his sentence. "'You know what I am going to say,' the pastor began, his austere face once more assuming its terrible expression you don't like me your mother don't like me and the congregation is divided doing all in their power to dispose me but i am right what other men may mean when they use that expression i cannot tell what i mean is that i am under the influence of some tremendous power which i know is god almighty himself and resist that power i dare not i may be called a fanatic cruel mad but The great and good God who made me ordains me in all things. This power, this spirit, this will, whatever it may be, is the chief motive that moves me. It could draw me to fire, it could draw me to water, it could draw me to the rack as it did martyrs of old. It could draw me to any death, to any pleasing or repulsive. I am mistaken, misunderstood by people, and the future as well as the present generation may condemn me in their narrow views of being dishonest, being revengeful, as being even bloodthirsty. But, Charles, when God did command Peter to slay, did he refuse? No. If my God commands me to slay, I will do it. The rivers of blood shall flow." The face of the wild fanatic was terrible to look upon. Charles Stevens, bold as he was, Gazing on him in the full light of day, could not repress a shudder. pastor's thin, cavernous face, smooth-shaven of an ashen hue, was upturned to heaven, and those great, awful eyes seemed gazing on things unlawful for men to see. That long right arm raised toward the sky, and again that deep voice called out, "O thou great Jehovah, but command me, and rivers of blood shall flow." mr paris began charles alarmed stop i implore you not to interrupt me charles wait until by fasting prayer and long solemn meditation and these mysterious subjects the lord open your eyes to the invisible world then you may judge if you become weary of long standing sit down and i will pour into your ears such proof that you can no longer deny the existence of witchcraft." Charles felt a strange smell of the fanatic's presence, and he merely bowed his head as a signal for him to proceed. Mr. Parris, in his deep, sepulchral voice, continued, "'Mr. John Higginson, that reverend and excellent person, says that the Indians, which came from far to settle about Mexico, were in their progress to that settlement under a contact of a devil, very strangely emulating the blessed covenant which God gave Israel in the wilderness. Acosta says that the devil and their idol Vizalepizel governed that mighty nation. He commanded them to leave their country, promising to make them lords over all the provinces possessed by six other nations of Indians and gave them a land abounding with all precious things. They went forth, carrying their idol with them in a coffer of reeds, supported by four of their principal priests, with whom he still discoursed in secrets, revealing to them the successes and accidents of their way. He advised them when to march and where to stay, and, without his command, they moved not. The first thing they did whenever they came to a camp, was to erect a tabernacle for their false god, which they always said in the midst of their camp, and they placed the ark upon an altar. When, wearied with the pains and fatigues of travelling, they talked of proceeding no further in their journey than a certain pleasant spot, whereto they had just arrived. The devil, in one night, horribly killed the ones who had started this talk, by pulling out their hearts, and so they passed on till they came to Mexico. The same devil, which then thus imitated what was in the Church of the Old Testament, now among us would imitate the affairs of the Church in the New. The witches do say that they form themselves after the manner of the Congregationalist Church, and that they have baptisms, and a supper, and officers among them resembling those of our lord. What is their striking down with a fierce look? What is their making of the afflicted rise with a touch of their hand? What is their transportation through the air? What is their travelling in spirit while their body is cast into a trance? What is it their causing cattle to run mad and perish? What is it their entering their names in a book? Their coming together from all parts at the sound of a trumpet? their appearing sometimes clothed with light and fire upon them, then covering themselves and their instruments with invisibility. Are not all these but a blasphemous imitation of certain things recorded by our Saviour, or his prophets, or the saints in the kingdom of God?" Oh, Mr. Paris," said Charles, when the fanatic had paused in his wild harangue for want of a breath, you seem in earnest. but." But you must bear in mind that there is a mistake in zeal." "'Oh, Charles, I know what you would say, but God has opened my eyes to the abominations of witchcraft." So Bishop Mendoza thought, when he ordered the innocent slain, "'Beware of false prophets, Mr. Paris. They are more to be dreaded than the protein devil of which you speak. Be sure that you remove the beam from your own eyes before you try to see the mote in the eyes of your brother. The shallow face of the fanatic grew more ghastly than before. His teeth gnashed, and his great eyes seemed starting in hatred from his head. Seizing the wrist of Charles with his hand, he clutched it so tightly as to almost make him cry out in pain, "'Charles, Charles, why persecutest thou me? Have not the scale of infidelity fallen from your eyes? Would you deny the power of God?' Charles Stevens, by an effort, freed his hand, and with a boldness which increased as he spoke, answered, "'It is not God whom I deny, but man. God is good and just and kind. He who, in the name of the Lord, would prevent his holy word, is an impostor and blasphemer, more base than a thief or an infidel.' "'Charles, beware,' said Mr. Parris. I have listened patiently to you, Mr. Parris. Now, listen to me. Where did you find in the Scripture justification for the charges you lay at the doors of innocent people, such as goody Nurse, or goody Easty, or goody Closey, and the poor little maid Cora Waters? And what harm have they ever done you that you, as a Christian man, may not forgive them? Charles, interrupted Mr. Parris. Hold, sir you shall hear me through, Mr. Parris. You must be a man of singular shamelessness, craft, ruthlessness, and impudence. Withal, you began your operation with sharp bargaining about your stipend and sharp practice in appropriating the house and land assigned for the use of successive pastors. you wrought so diligently under the stimulus of your ambition." that you have got to the meeting-house sanctioned as a true church and yourself ordained as the first pastor of Village. Because you were opposed by Goody Nurse and her sisters and others, you seek to charge them with offenses made punishable under our laws by death." The sallow face of the pastor grew almost white, but in a voice of forced calmness he said, "'Go on, go on no it is for you to tell without further discussion why you brought me here rather let me guess it you have brought me here to say something about cora waters you have come to tell me she is a witch and i tell you it is false the passionate minister glanced at the youth for a moment and said charles do you deny that she is a child of a player i do not but what sin follows being the child of a player or being even a player. Nowhere does the Bible condemn the actor for his profession, and, if the player be godly, his calling is unobjectionable. Oh, Mr. Parris, eradicate from your heart the deadly poison of prejudice, and there will appear no harm in that fair, innocent, and much-abused young maid. She has ever been a child of sorrow and of tears, one who never in thought wronged any Tell me that child is a witch, Mister Parris. It is false. Then cried the pastor, suddenly changing his tone, turning to Charles and bringing his clenched hand down upon the stone fence with a force that laid the knuckles raw and bleeding. Then you may both go down, down to the infernal regions together. The dark look of hatred and revenge with which the words broke from his livid lips and with which he stood holding out his bruised and bleeding hand, made Charles shudder, and turned to go home, but the pastor caught his arm. "'Mr. Parris, let me go. I have heard quite enough. We understand each other thoroughly.' "'And you will not give her up?' "'Never.' "'Verily she hath bewitched you, too.' "'I don't believe in witchcraft.' "'What?' said Mr. Parris. "'Do you deny the word of God? "'Have you a care? "'You are going too far in this, and your mother? "'She does not believe in it either.' "'Charles, why have you and your mother grievously opposed me?' he demanded, his eyes glaring with hatred and his breath coming hard, while a white froth tinged with blood exuded from his lips. "'Because you are a madman, Mr. Parris,' cried Charles, "'you are a saintly fraud.' The rage of the pastor knew no bounds. Pointing his wounded and bleeding hand at Charles, he cried, "Go, curse of an outrage! God, go with you!" And Charles went home. End of Chapter Ten. Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan.